Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you've had a, a good week. Let's turn to First Kings chapter four. The lesson today will be on Ecclesiastes five eight, leaving off uh, from last week's sermon, July second, in the evening on community and worship which covered uh, 4.7 through 5.7. We'll pick up at 5.8 and go through 6.12 today. So 1 Kings 4, 20 through 28. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now Solomon's provisions for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tipsa even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on every side all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And these governors, each man in his month, provided food for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table. There was no lack in their supply. They also brought barley and straw to the proper place for the horses and steeds, each man according to his charge. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the good gift of your word. We pray that you would help us through your Holy Spirit, uh, open it to us, and may your name be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're going to, rather than read the chapter and a half all at once. We'll just read as we go. But just know that this whole section from 5.8 onward through the end of chapter 6 deals with poverty and wealth and various proverbs on these. Um, so let's read five Ecclesiastes 5.8 through 9. 5.8 and 9. If you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province... Do not marvel at the matter, for high official watches over high official, and higher officials are over them. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. I'm going to borrow heavily from Michael Eaton and Craig Bartholomew today, uh, and particularly on these verses. uh, We're dealing here with, with bureaucracy, and it's oppression of the poor. So now we, we turn from, from private action, uh, perhaps, to, uh, to the government action. So we see poor under an oppressive bureaucracy. The violent perversion of justice, you can take that to mean maybe a form of robbery. Um, so Tallahassee is a company town, right? Uh, how can bureaucracy be oppressive? Yes, go ahead, Phil. Telling us to wear masks. Telling us to wear masks. 
Have you ever been to the DMV? Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Tim. <laughs> Taxes and regulations. Yes. Making everything difficult. Okay. Okay. Property taxes. Um, can you could you imagine that the poor man who needs to be out there working for tonight's dinner? Could you imagine them standing in that line at the DMV or wherever in countless forms and all that? You can see how the poor laborer is even more affected by uh, by bureaucracy and its layers. Uh, their delays and their excuses. And the poor sometimes can't afford to wait for justice, and so the moment for justice is lost. Now, uh, higher officials, how did that go? For high official watches over high official, and higher officials are over them. Is that encouraging? Is that positive or negative, do you think? It's not positive. Okay. Not positive. What's your what's your thought? How so? That was the extent of my thought. Okay. No, that's good. That's good. Was fifty fifty. Good job. I think it can be positive. Okay. I mean, I feel like it, to some degree our church is set up that way with presbyteries and people okay. oversight and oversight to appeal. Um, sure. When it's functioning properly, it, it should it should uh, promote justice. Uh, Godly accountability, sure. It can be a benefit to have a, a hierarchy. Like, hey, lower official, you've got that wrong. You know, listen to the people. Um, well, Michael Eaton translates it in a slightly clearer way, perhaps. One official looks after the interests of another official. Or, or Barth- Bartholomew watches out for... So you have this idea of a kind of an intricate network of corruption above the poor person. Uh, you know, they're simply obeying the people higher up above them. And unfortunately, they're even more evil. So we can just see how uh, oppression, uh, power can become corrupt and spread like a cancer through the entire structure. Uh, I like what Charles Bridges said here. This verse falls in with one great object of the book, which is to compose the minds of the servants of God to stillness and confidence under his inscrutable dispensations. Even when it's coming from something that was intended for good, a, a righteous government, as in, as in Romans 13, a righteous administration of justice. So remember that when you go to get your driver's license renewed and they want five different proofs of address to, uh, no, I'm just kidding. It's only two, I think, currently for the address you just moved to. Do you have have a piece of mail from that address? All right. Um, So in 9, verse 9, the prophet of the land is for all, even the king is served from the field. Another way to say that is an advantage to a land for everyone is a king over cultivated land. Or uh, Bartholomew actually treats it as a, uh, as a proverb. A king for a plowed field. So the point being that this bureaucracy ultimately would have to answer to the king. Government is a good institution. It's designed to facilitate justice for all for the benefit of all citizens. 
So this idea of a king for a plowed field, you know, if, uh, if justice is being rightly administered by the king, then the fields are being plowed. The poor are able to be there working and laboring, and the produce is helping the entire land. So just rule promotes plowed fields throughout the land and all can benefit. But you just, you know, hope, ironically speaking, that the, uh, the whole thing is not rotten all the way to the top. You know, because if, if the king is not there to promote justice, then ultimately there's no earthly hope. I'll turn to First Timothy six six through ten, and as we read the next section of Ecclesiastes, I want you to be thinking about some of these problems of the love of money that the Apostle Paul discusses and how they how they are apparently laid out in what we're going to read in Ecclesiastes. First Timothy six six through ten. Now godliness. With contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. And here we go. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And for some of the children who may be hearing that for the first time, he's not decrying money, but it's love, lusting after it. All right, so we're going to read 10 through 17 ultimately, but uh, let's start with 10 through 12 in Ecclesiastes 5. And, and kind of as we go through, I'm going to ask you, what problems do you see in, in this reading with the love of money uh, or, or with money and what it can lead to if you, if you put all of your trust in it? should be able to note three in this short section, 10 through 12. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. Can anyone just shout out a a problem you see there with depending on money? It's never enough. It's never enough, never satisfied, yes. Anyone else? Money itself is probably never going to make it happy. Okay. You can't find ultimate happiness in in money? Right. Yes, additional costs just to protect where you're at. And, and you can see in one of these verses, you're protecting it from people sometimes. Okay. Worry, you're unable to sleep. You'll remember that. All right, so in, uh, in verse 10, yeah, we see that money cannot fulfill or satisfy a covetous heart. 
Note that it won't be satisfied in its possession, in verse 10, or with its increase. You would think, you know, okay, I, I need more money. I'm starting to uh, feel like I'm losing control. Okay, here's some more money. But even that will not ultimately satisfy when you've made it an idol. It, you know, they tell me a, a drug addict is always trying to get back to that first hit of a drug that they took, that first high. And they can never quite get there again because and less and less the, the concept of diminishing returns. Well, there's also a lot of people that have won massive amounts in lotteries mm-hmm. and how it's ultimately ruined their lives. Okay, Absolutely. G.K. Chesterton said there are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more, and the other is to desire less. And of course, we know the first one more and more. You're just never going to get there. Luke 12:15, And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Charles Bridges said, covetousness, men are accustomed to give it a softer name, such as prudence. I'm I'm just being wise by by hoarding or or whatever. No, I I can't help my neighbor because, you know, what could be around the corner tomorrow? Now, again, this is the love of money. There's nothing wrong with personal property and wealth in themselves. And they're even recognized in the law of God, aren't they? Uh, To not covet that of your neighbors, to not steal from your neighbor. All right, verse 11, uh, the costs. Well, you get to make a lot of friends you don't want. Dependents, and I don't mean children, a retinue, a posse, retainers, hangers on. What do they call the group that walks along with a boxer to the boxing ring looking to win his big purse, his entourage, as if, you know, making it French entourage uh, makes it better. Bartholomew says the point is that the thing pursued, namely wealth, takes on a life of its own in increasing costs. Someone said that and starts to control the person pursuing it. All the owner can do is stand and watch. And that's the see them with their eyes as the problems gather momentum. And I know it's a third issue that, that was mentioned by Becky in verse 12. The rich man with increased cares does not enjoy the good and peaceful sleep of the poor laboring man who is content in his daily labor. Sinclair Ferguson and his pundit's folly, it's a very brief paragraph, riches bring no peace. Sometimes they bring blessings with them, but usually these are reserved for those who have learned to give them away. Riches are often more... or are more often a burden, they bring insomnia. Few people sleep more peacefully just because they are rich, while many sleep happily 
knowing only that they have enough. Money cannot buy a, buy a mind at rest. It is powerless to quieten a troubled conscience. All right. So again, three more reasons coming up. Uh, problems uh, with money. Verses 13 to 17 of chapter 5. There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt, but those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there's nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Any problems with the love of money you see there? Thieves break in and steal and moth or moths okay. rust eat. Okay. You can't control it. You can't keep it. There's things that come up we can't anticipate. Misfortune happens. That's right. Matthew 6, there's a, a natural progression for treasures. They melt back into, uh, back into the earth. There's one problem Solomon's dealt with constantly, this, this cycle that ends in death. You know. In 13 and 14, the sudden loss of riches. He calls it a severe evil. During a miser's life, the riches were gathered and kept, but to his own hurt. And the hurt in verse 14 is in their loss because they did not help him, nor can he leave them for his son. It doesn't matter how the, what catastrophic loss this was, misfortune. And again, I'm not afraid any longer to, to use that word misfortune. It could certainly be understand in the world, fortune and chance and lady luck and all of that. But if we understand misfortune as from the hand of God alone, a bad business venture, a bad investment, you know, sometimes God has other plans. And more often than not, uh, he's going to, uh, we're going to be at odds with God if we, certainly if we make wealth an idol. Charles Bridges, uh, I haven't quoted him much. Uh, here's two today already. So often a rise in the world is declension or ap- apostasy from God. It is only when riches are consecrated to God and laid out in the service of our fellow creatures that they become a blessing. The miser's riches as seen here vanish and his son is left a beggar. So in 15 and 16, we see the problem of death. You can't take it with you. Now, this is a different approach to the concept than Job's. Job's, uh, you know, having gained the heavenly treasure of the Lord during his life, uh, he, he says much the same thing. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Boy, I wish I could uh, 
do that on a daily basis more. And, you know, with the Holy Spirit's help, we will. We can say that. But here Solomon calls this loss a great evil, returning naked uh, at the end of your life. And he asks the question of 1-3 again, uh, what profit has a man for all his labor under the sun? And again, he sees nothing. But we should understand it differently. Look at the end of verse 15. And he shall take nothing from his labor when he dies, in other words, which he may carry away in his hand. It's true we don't take earthly treasures with us. And sometimes we can't even leave them to our loved ones. Sometimes they do disappear catastrophically. But we do take plenty in our hand to heaven. Our sanctification, which is then completed before God. Uh, sixth and final problem, uh, just this, it was already mentioned, the physical and the spiritual and mental agony, literally making yourself sick over money. I would say these sum up that severe evil in verse 16. This man could have grown. He could have been justified by faith. He could have been sanctified and built up a heavenly treasure. But he chose instead to drink the cup of bitterness. I just want to blow through this quote from the next chapter, 8 through 12, uh, 7, 8 through 12. The end, perhaps, perhaps the miser could have benefited from this. The, the miser who uh, never got to spend it on himself and then lost it all. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. I remember Pastor Hobbs constantly saying that uh, you want to finish better than you began. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry like this person in bitterness. For anger rests in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why were the former days better than these before he lost everything? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable for those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. But the miser chose death and chose to double down on his love of money when he lost it all. We move into our fourth of seven in Ecclesiastes Carpe Diem passages in 18 through 20. Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and has given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. So God enables us. God gives the gift and enables us to enjoy it. You don't need to turn, turn back there, but Proverbs, or excuse me, 1 Timothy 6, uh, 17, right after that passage we had read earlier about the love of money. God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. 
Craig Bartholomew points out, while Genesis 1 1 through 11 does not use the word joy, it is implied in the theology of blessing and embodied in the human response to the good creation made as a home for humans. We saw rejoicing and joy in the Pentateuch, in the the annual festivals. Deuteronomy 12, 7, joy and and rejoicing and everything you put your hands to in God's presence. Feasting and rejoicing is a major theme in Psalms and Isaiah. Jeremiah 31, 12, Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and wine, and oil for the young of the flock and the herd. Their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. You know, there was another well-watered garden. Now, I've never done this long of a quote, and I hope my estimate of how long it will take to read it is correct. But from Craig Bartholomew, I, I, this was actually from our first Carpe Diem verse in Bartholomew. Um, or It's from his introduction Actually, um, but I held on it, and now I want to do this. It is a full-page quote, but it's simply amazing. So I just quoted a bunch of things from the Old Testament of joy that God intended. How about the New Testament? Furthermore, Jesus fulfills the whole of the Old Testament, including the wisdom tradition. And as Witherington rightly argues... The wisdom traditions of the Old Testament form an important background to, the, to Jesus in the Gospels. What is rarely explored is Ecclesiastes' role in this respect, and yet its celebration of life and its affirmation of feasting resonate deeply with Jesus' ministry, especially as it is described in Luke's Gospel, in which Jesus seems to go from party to party. Jesus literally ate his way through the Gospels. Jesus went, here's a a long quote, Jesus went to meals, weddings and parties, and had a feast-centered ethic. The images are vivid, water turned into wine, guests jockeying for places at table and being told to aim for the lower places, a woman sinner shocking the company by anointing Jesus and being forgiven by him, the reversal of expectations as the poor, handicapped, and outsiders of all sorts are welcomed at the feast of the kingdom of God, while those who thought themselves sure of a place are left out. Advice about not inviting to your banquet those who will invite you back. A master sitting a servant down and serving him. The prodigal son welcomed back unconditionally with the best robe, a ring, shoes, the fatted calf, and a celebration. Jesus' last supper, which was probably also a celebration of Passover. Jesus washing his disciples' feet and the mysterious meals of the risen Jesus. H. Anderson and Foley described Jesus as, quote, a storyteller with bread. They remind us how much of his ministry is remembered through the food and dining metaphors that provide the vernacular for narrating Jesus. His food was the will of the one he called Father, and this divine will in turn became the enduring banquet for any who dared to follow him. Jesus' ministry... His evangelizing, his legacy, were so intimately linked to the ritual metaphors of dining and food that in his fascinating book, 6,000 Years of Bread, H.E. Jacob could title his chapter on Jesus as Jesus Christ, the Bread God. And as remembered over and over in the Gospels, they killed him because of the way he ate. 
That is because he ate and drank with sinners. Ecclesiastes, with its particular emphasis on celebration and feasting, offers itself as a major source from which Jesus would have taken this understanding of the kingdom. In Matthew eleven sixteen through 19 Jesus specifically relates his eating and drinking to wisdom. The book of Revelation looks forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And John, in his final exhortations, encourages all those who thirst. And this side of the, this side of the consummation of the kingdom, we do indeed thirst to come and drink of the water of life. I love that quote, and it completely opened my mind, my eyes to see uh, the importance of joy as a commandment to us. Um, it has not been a feature of my life, and I hope in my remaining years to, to change that. I can look at, you know, Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and I always... Just took it as a command, but how to get there? How to? I didn't realize how much of it was in, was in embracing God's good gifts that He gives us, and that it's okay to enjoy those things as long as we do not make them an idol. He referred to Matthew eleven sixteen through nineteen. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man, Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Before we move on to these Carpe Diem verses, Irenaeus said, The glory of God is the human person fully alive. Right on schedule. All right. Verse 18. Michael Eaton says, Here is what I have seen. Uh, that's referred to in verse 18. Here's what I have seen. He's seeing another type of life apart from what we just read, apart from what we're about to read in, in chapter 6. A life enjoyable in toil and not in its absence, not the lazy person who refuses to work. To eat and drink is expressive of companionship, joy, and satisfaction. It's a symbol of the contented and happy life. We open with Solomon's reign, 1 Kings 4.20. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. This is the wise man's portion. Twice here in these three verses, it's said to be a gift from God. Not only the gifts, but the ability to enjoy them. Now, he does acknowledge the brevity of life in verse 18. All the days of his life which God gives him. But his attitude is not, here is not as before. Death is seen as positive while one lives rightly. And contrast how this person eats. To eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all of his labor, 
with verse 17 and the miser who had catastrophically lost everything. And please understand when I say catastrophically, that's from his perspective. It's probably not a word we should even use. But how does he eat? In darkness, much sorrow and sickness and anger. But the Christian eats and drinks and enjoys the good of all his labor along with God. So we see here that these things go together, potentially, the good gifts and also the ability to enjoy them. But when we turn over to chapter 6, you're going to see that not everyone who's given good gifts is given the ability by God to enjoy them. It seems to be about our attitude seeing them as, like we've said, gift, not gain. Michael Eaton says the Hebrew literally means to make a master. God makes a master or gives mastery in order to enjoy. This suggests that attitude towards those gifts and our enjoyment of them is central. Of course, uh, Philippians 4, 11, and 12 uh, I, I have learned to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound, to be full, to be hungry, uh, to, to abound and to suffer need. I, I've always enjoyed that, uh, that language. I know how. That, that is sanctification at its root. So... In these Carpe Diem verses, life's brevity does not uh, seem to bother Solomon. And it doesn't give the sleepless nights. There's a sense of contentment and peace. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. for help with that attitude. If I said 2 Corinthians, I hope. Did I say first? <laughs> Sorry. 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, it's okay to look at those things that are temporary. But uh, how we treat them in our lives and not making them an idol uh, is, is central. All right, so Ecclesiastes 6. Twelve short verses. We'll do six at first, one through six. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor 
so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires. Yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity and it is an evil affliction. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he, for it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness. Do not all go to one place. So we had a brief respite from the despair, from Solomon's despair, and we seem to go right back into it. It's hard to say, is Solomon, you know, certainly it's, it's his tool as author to show the, the one way to live, show another way to live. Um, it's tempting for me to try to parse his mind and figure out where he is at any given moment. All I can say is it's a journey and we're only halfway through. So in chapter 5, we saw that the love of money does not answer the question of what life is about. Here in 1 through 12, we're going to see his central concern that acquiring wealth does not by itself satisfy, but there's a new term that we haven't seen yet, a new term, and that is it doesn't bring rest that a meaningful life requires. So, of course, in 5.19... As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. We contrast that here with 6.2. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. So... Having wealth does not guarantee the enjoyment of it. Again, as we just discussed, it seems that a lot of that has to do with your attitude of approach to a good gift. Craig Bartholomew wonders here if Solomon isn't comparing the oppression in chapter 5, verse 8, and wondering how a person is able to enjoy their labor if the oppression makes it impossible, or the catastrophic loss in 5.14 makes it unable to even enjoy the riches. In 3 through 6, we see that the pursuer of riches finds no rest. And we know from the creation order in Genesis that man needs rest. It was to be the good gift of God. But since the fall, we, don't, we aren't integrated into work in God's plan as much as we were intended to be. We're going to come up short. There are thorns, but we can still find positive joy despite those thorns. And that is through our relationship with God, by His Holy Spirit. 
we just must be careful to not let these gifts become an idol and replace our creator. So the vanity in chapter 6 was the lone miser. Having no children, you'll remember from last Sunday night. He had no companion, no son, no brother, at least no relationship with them. But here we're told, even if you have a hundred children and live a long life, and do not live properly before God, the life of labor leads us no rest and no satisfaction. Now the book of Proverbs makes it clear that grandchildren are the crown of the aged. Length of days and long life are intended for peace. But here's somebody with both of those things and no rest or fulfillment because of their love of money. Michael Eaton states, it's better to miscarry at birth than to miscarry throughout life. Let's read uh, 6, 7, and 8. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? So obviously in in, uh, verse 7, bread maintains our physical life, but those cravings return every day. But bread does not meet our inner needs, and it certainly does not meet sinful worldly desires. Those will always be unsatisfied. So wisdom may be above folly, as we know, but not always in outward circumstances. The same fruit of the labor of the rich and the poor provides for them both, but yet they both meet their end in death. Wealth is not going to provide, even for the rich man, a meaningful rest. And if wisdom literature is all about living life skillfully, what value is it to the poor if they're oppressed and exploited? How can wisdom help the poor rise out of poverty and become wealthy if wealth is not ultimately the meaning of life? So you see Solomon with those same types of words, of vanity. And that's strictly from the worldly man's point of view, of course. So let's finish with 9 through 12 of chapter 6. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Whatever one is, he has been named already. For it is known that he is man and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. That's God. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? For who knows what is good for man in life, all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? I wanted to quote Psalm 119, 36 and 37. 
Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Let's use those good gifts for our enjoyment as a command from the Lord and to help others and to give to others for their enjoyment. But the psalmist clearly means a different way of looking at worthless things. What makes them worthless is what is in the heart. So here Solomon in in verse 10 seems to reach an impasse. Let's see. Whatever one is, he's been named already, for it is known that he is man. Well, who named him man? God named us man. He is the maker. It reminds us that we are the creature and we cannot contend with God, even if we wanted to. We have creaturely limitations because of that, which should drive us even more to the Word and to the Holy Spirit. So in 11, since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? Uh, In the ESV and the New American Standard, you'll see words. The increase of words are also vanity. And here Solomon seems unable to find the right words. Words cannot change the world in and of themselves, so what advantage are they to a man? Here he's referring again to the brevity of life and its enigmatic nature, that when we're gone, these same cycles of creation are going to keep on happening, moving along the timeline of God's plan. And we'll just conclude with, uh, with Derek Kidner. This man is left with no absolute values to live for, not any practical certainties. Only the door of faith remains open. And all I can say is now, halfway through Ecclesiastes, uh, I can encourage you, despite that turn from you know, him having his head down in, verse, in, in chapter 5, well, really just exiting the, uh, the sanctuary, uh, at the beginning of verse five, uh, beginning of chapter five, and then explaining the, the catastrophic losses of these poor, poor people, and then we have the the sunshine at the end of chapter five of the Carpe Diem verses. But then we go, we seem to go down into the pit again in chapter six. Uh, the door of faith remains open, as Kidner says, and uh, by the end things will be looking up. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you uh, for the journey of Solomon. We thank you for him putting it in writing. Uh, Lord, we know that but for your grace, we would do the same. Uh, but on some level, even though we didn't have, don't have his resources, uh, you know, all these wives and concubines, for one, that was one of the pleasures of the royal experiment. Lord, uh, there's a way out there even today for, uh, with the internet for even the poor man uh, to have those 300 wives, 700 concubines, uh, 
whatever the numbers were, Lord, um, to even exceed Solomon's wickedness. So, Father, won't you please protect this church um, from pursuing earthly pursuits, from looking at money the wrong way, Lord, from making an idol of it, And Father, as we look to go to worship now, help us to be like Solomon, uh, as we learned last week, who who walked prudently when he came into the house of God. Grant, Grant us through your Holy Spirit, Lord, to serve you and honor you today. In Jesus' name, amen.